Good. So in the last uh, the last few sessions, we've been talking in much more detail about meditation and the and how to prepare for that and what it means. And so I want to continue. Uh, yesterday we talked about uh, our approach to meditation. So now when we when we actually begin our meditation practice, then we can be very observant of what's happening in the mind brain. So as we interiorize our attention, and this means that we pull the, the awareness away from the senses and we bring the attention back inside. So we're no longer giving our energy, our prana, our life force to these external sensors. We just leave them alone for the time being. And of course, we know what's happening, but we're just not giving that any extra attention. So we keep our attention flowing within and we disregard as much as possible what's happening around us. And then we disregard what's happening in the body, the sensations of the body. So we let, let that go. And then we, as we turn our attention within and as we begin our mantra or whatever, our focus of attention, something we can hang the attention on to be able to more deeply interiorize so that our attention really is drawn away from the external and inside, inside. So, so this, this is the, the use of our technique of our mantra or uh, prayer or visualization, affirmation, whatever we're doing is a, is a point of focus to keep our attention flowing, flowing to one point, flowing in. So, and then it's useful to flow our attention here because the frontal lobes of the brain are the center of focused attention. This is where our ability to focus our attention comes from. And this is also the frontal lobes are also the part that have projections into the rest of the brain and the body, and they're able to inhibit. So the inhibitory ability also comes from up here. So our ability to inhibit random thoughts, free association, the internal dialogue, all of that is also associated here. So this is why the yogis figured out a long time ago that there are energy centers here and also material functional centers neural pathways that can both encourage and enhance uh, our our uh, ability to turn our attention within and to withdraw our attention from the external okay so and and as a kind of a little way of uh, putting some context on this normally we have this energy, this life force comes in, it animates our mind brain. The mind and the brain are not separate. The brain is the, the vehicle through which the mind is operating. And the brain is not located in the head. The, the brain is located in the entire system. So there are, so there are neural pathways that go from the gray matter up in the head, what we think of as the brain, all the way down into the heart, into the gut, and all the way to your big toe. And there's a constant communication that's going on between all these neurons back and forth. And this constant communication, this awareness is all part of the brain. And there are centers, there are locations within the brain that have special functions. You have the temporal lobes and, you know, they're responsible for manual dexterity and the occipital lobe and so there are parts that have special functions, but they're all functioning. They're also all functioning together. They're not compartmentalized in that one can't do something and they're actually interacting. And they say, you know, there are cases where folks have a stroke and they lose function. The whole side of their brain doesn't get any blood supply and it just basically atrophies and it doesn't work. And within a fairly short amount of time with some exercise, um, the other side of the brain takes over the, the functions of what used to happen over here. So the brain is all completely interactive with itself and, and it listens to its different departments and the heart has a, I think we talked about this earlier, the heart has a, a sensor that is directly perceiving what's happening and it's not going through the internal dialogue. It's not having to use words to communicate with the world. So the heart is feeling directly what's happening and the mind is, or the head is, 
is analyzing that and figuring it out and trying to make sense out of whatever it is that we're perceiving and experiencing. And so this is part of the mind now that, the, you know, the brain, we can think of that as the computer and the mind is like the software that's running on the computer. So in this mind, it has a, you know, it has a, a number one function and that is to, uh, to be receiving the information, the data that comes from the senses. So these senses are transducers. This is the way we touch the world. We touch the world with our skin. There are several different kinds of receptors. There are some that are sensitive to uh, pressure, some that are sensitive to texture, some that are sensitive to uh, temperature. So this whole uh, group of sensors in our skin sends information back to the brain so it knows what's happening and where we are and if this shirt is comfortable. Okay. And then we have, we touch the world through our eyes. We have rods and cones back inside here and the rods and cones receive electromagnetic frequencies in a very, 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 very narrow range, the super little range of all the possible electromagnetic frequencies these rods and cones have a sensitivity to. And when the right electromagnetic frequency tickles those receptors, they send a signal back to the back of the brain. And then that uh, part of the brain has to figure out what does this noise mean? What does this signal mean? So it's not like a camera where the image is projected on the eyeball and then the, and then the image is delivered back to the brain to make some sense out of, no. There is a constant stream of information, of data that comes from the eyes, that goes back to the brain, and then the brain has to make sense, literally has to create an image out of the data. So this is what's happening. The mind and brain are making sense out of the world. They are making sense out of the world. It's not just a direct, you know, a direct correlation, the mind-brain actually has to convert the data that's coming in into something that's meaningful. And the way we train ourselves, the way we are trained early on, uh, the way we are trained and in our experiences uh, change the way our brain is wired up, so it changes the way we are perceiving. So I remember back in the, in the late 60s, they did an experiment where um, they had some people wear glasses that had a lens that turned the world upside down. So, uh, you know, so when you look through a lens, it actually inverts things. So if you put these glasses on, everything's upside down. It's topsy-turvy. And so the experiment was, well, what happens if you, if you wear these glasses all the time? And, and I forget what the time was, but it didn't take very long before the brain automatically compensated and these people were walking around just like normal. And it wasn't like they were having to think about um, where I'm stepping. The brain just flipped itself around and everything looked regular. And when they took the glasses off, the world was upside down. So this is interesting, you see. So our brain is making sense at our sent our brain is making sense out of all this input, whatever's coming into us, we are kind of creating our reality. And the part that's doing the creating of the reality, the receptor back here, the, the processing system, never gets to touch the world. It's, you know, it's locked up in a black box. And the only way it knows what's happening in the world is through this data, this stream of information, this electromagnetic information, chemical electromagnetic information that comes streaming into it. And all the neurons are jumping around and, and uh, you know, there's a trillion of them. They're doing amazing things and they are creating an image of the world. They're creating an image of this reality. And, you know, and we talked about this uh, uh, last month, I think there, you know, we can actually demonstrate how interesting this is um, by looking at our blind spot. So the eye, in the middle of the eye is a little, a little bowl, a fovea, a little bowl where most of the, the cones are, and there's, uh, yeah, most of the cones are, this is what perceives color. It's a very, very small little area. And in the center of the fovea, is where the optic nerve connects up to the brain. 
And at that center part of the fovea, there's no rods and cones. This is just the, it's like the connecting cable that's plugged in. And so in that very, very center part of your uh, perception, there is no information. There is a blind spot, literally. So, and you can check, you know, you can test this, just um, cover one eye, hold your hand out at full length, and then, and then move your finger, it's too much, move your finger slowly across your field of vis vision, just stare at one point in the, in the distance, one eye closed, move your eye, your, your finger across, and you will notice there's a place where it disappears. It's not there because there's no rods and cones to be able to perceive that. But your brain doesn't like the idea of walking around with big holes in its vision, so it makes up the space. It just creates something. It invents, it invents what's not there. And so we see a seamless reality. Wow. Not only that, but the, the, the part that is the color receptors, this phobia, is focused in this little teeny part in the center of the retina. And around that, there are much more receptors that are there sensitive to, um, to uh, light and dark. But the part that is sensitive to color, that's really contained in the middle. And, and this is also where we have more uh, detail. So when you look off into the distance and you just look straight ahead, you have an image that's three-dimensional in color all the way, everywhere, and it has this illusion of being, you know, persistent. Um, the reality is that your brain is constantly filling in all these details and the parts that you're not really seeing clearly um, uh, are being created. So your, your eyes actually are kind of jiggling around all the time to help create this illusion. So the point of all that is just that what's going on inside is uh, all being made up, being created for us, for our experience of reality, okay? So we are literally making sense out of the world. And then, and then behind that, there is a little more subtle de department, a little more subtle aspect, and that is what's called the intellect, buddhi. And this buddhi is the discerning, discriminating, so, so what the mind is doing is making sense out of the world, creating an image, serving us up a picture, an experience of reality, whatever that happens to be. And it also has contained within it preferences, predilections. It also has contained within it memories. It has the several different aspects of what it's doing with the information that's coming in. And then Behind that is discerning, discriminating, and it is able to tell the difference between what's real and what's not real and uh, gives us kind of a, a sense, an overview, like the witness. And so we have these kind of different levels. And the reason that I, that I go into all that is because now when we sit to meditate and we say, okay, well, you know, the second sutra says yoga, chitta, vritti, Naroda. So Naroda is to pacify, to calm down the chitta vrittis, and the vrittis are these fluctuations, the turnings, the things that are occurring within the field of awareness. And Patanjali goes on and says, he goes on and says, you know, the reason that we practice is that when we're efficient, when we finally calm the mind and keep the vrittis completely quiet, when they finally subside completely, totally, then we rest in oneness consciousness. We rest in our awareness and attention is, comes together with our essence of being. And this is yoga or samadhi. And so, and so um, Patanjali says that when we're efficient, when this works, when the vrittis are completely calmed down, then the seer, the observer, experiences the self with the capital S. Then we abide in this experience of being. And then he says in the next sutra, he says, and as soon as something happens in the field of awareness, as soon as the vrittis begin, then the seer identifies with what's happening in the mind, identifies with the thoughts, identifies with the story. And so here we go again. So, and then he goes on and explains, well, what is the nature of what's happening in the mind? What are these fluctuations? What are these vrittis? You know, so, and he's, 
does a very um, amazing job of being very clear and very precise about his description. So the first of these vrittis, these fluctuations, these contents in the field of awareness is knowledge. So what we know, and he goes on and says that knowledge comes from three main sources. The first is direct perception. So pramana, so we perceive, you know, so you can look around the room and you can see what is there. And that's, you have knowledge of that's because it's a direct experience. You know, you look out the window and if you see that it's bright and sunny, um, then you know it's daytime. You have this experience. You have an experience that is, comes from direct knowledge because this, I mean, this direct knowledge comes from your personal experience. And so, you know. And then the second form of knowledge is inference. And so, in the same way, I look out the window and I see that it's bright out there. And so, I can infer that the sun is up. It's not one of those big magic movie sets where they've got all these super lights out here and they've lit up the countryside. No, I can infer, I can't see the sun, but I know the sun is up. This is knowledge from inference. And then the third is knowledge that comes from, that's reported to us from wise ones, from the rishis, the seers, from our guru, from our teachers, from the people that we trust. So, so we have information that comes to us from these wiser minds and we take that in and we assimilate that as knowledge. And then, so this is the first of our vrittis of these fluctuations. So we know things. And then we have uh, the second one, which is, is delusion. And delusion is completely not seeing what is there, is, is missing the point totally. So, uh, so delusion is where the mind is not connecting up with reality and we are misperceiving, really misperceiving what's happening. And the, the, the classic tale is uh, we walk out the door and we're going down the path at twilight and we see the snake on the path and we react to the snake. The blood pressure goes up, heart rate goes up. And, and then we look again and we see, oh, it's not a snake at all. It's the garden hose. You know, we didn't get put away last night. And so, um, and so we, we were deluded. We were not seeing what was there. We were superimposing expectations on top of what was there. And so in that superimposition, we saw something that wasn't real, didn't exist. And by the way, people are doing this right now in the world. We're having, you know, kind of a, a pandemic of delusion where people are superimposing their ideas and their expectations on what's happening and creating some real chaos and problems as a result. So, um, <clears throat> so we have delusion and then the next one, there's, by the way, there's five. Patanjali is a master of keeping everything down to fives so you can count them on your fingers, you know, or write them on your fingers. So the third one is, um, Concepts, bikalpa. The concepts are, are uh, perception or ideas. They're things that go on in the mind that don't have any basis in reality. They don't actually exist. So we can imagine what might happen in the future. We can imagine what's going on over there. We can imagine many things and we can create. This is how we create is using, um, using our imagination to envision things that don't exist. Uh, this was part of what Ryan was talking about last night. So an amazing adventure, I mean, an amazing um, aspect of our awareness that we can do this. This is a real gift to be able to imagine something that does not exist right now. And then we can work with it and actually watch it come into manifestation, watch it come into expression. So, this is bikalpa, imagining, conceptualizing. And uh, then the next one is memory. So we have memories of the, all the things that have ever happened to us. Everything is recorded, even the things that we can't recall and bring back to the top of our head. We are, they're still all recorded, everything. So we have memory and, um, and then we have sleep. And sleep is where the, where awareness is identified with not being conscious with unconsciousness. So this is, this is sleep. So we have knowledge, delusion, 
imagination, memory, and sleep. So these are the five vrittis. These are the five things that kind of take over or that are, are, are moving through the field of awareness all the time. And so we can look. I mean, if we're sitting to meditate and we find that we're drowsy, dozing off, we can't stay awake, well, here we have this vritti, this, this sleep, this identification with unconsciousness that is dominating our awareness, and our awareness is being dragged down by that. Uh, or maybe we have memories that are popping up. You know, we sit to meditate and we kind of get in this moment, and when we really kind of relax and get quiet, then all of a sudden, you know, this trauma comes back up, or we remember, you know, we forgot to turn the stove off, or we remember something uh, comes up for us, and so memories start to percolate up. Or we sit to meditate, and, and as we become quiet, we start to imagine. We start to imagine, well, what it's going to be like next. What do I do? What am I going to have for lunch? Or what are we going to have tomorrow? Or what's going to happen in the world when this uh, pandemic is over? We start to imagine these vikalpas come up. Or we sit to, sit to meditate, we turn our attention within, and um, delusions, ideas of fantasy and, and uh and things that are totally unreal, un not related to reality, that are distorted, begin to dominate our awareness. You know, so we become, so we start to feel fearful, anxious, worried. You know, this this all comes from delusion, folks. There is no, no basis in reality for fear or anxiety. So, where does it come from? Well, we're missing the point. So, so delusion can pop up, and then knowledge. You know, we have we know about things. And as we turn our attention within, and as we start to become quiet, we can kind of notice that the mind has this tendency to want to keep uh, uh, an internal dialogue, to keep, uh, to keep telling itself stories, to keep narrating what's happening. And so when we turn the attention within, we, don't, we no longer have all the distractions of the world around us to be narrating and telling ourselves, this is what's happening here. That's what's going on there. You know, blah, blah, blah. Instead, now we have this inner stuff that's happening. And so as thoughts begin to percolate up, as these vrittis begin to percolate up, any one of them, then the mind has to narrate. It has to explain to us what's going on with that thought. And as we pay attention to that thought, it gets bigger. We're giving it energy. We're growing it. So as we pay attention to it, it starts to dominate our awareness. So, so as we become very mindful of this process, we can watch and we can start to notice the thoughts, the vrittis that bubble up, and we can disregard them. It doesn't mean that they're not there. It just means we're going to give more attention, more of our awareness to this space of clarity. And we feel this space of clarity in between each breath. Every time we exhale, there's a momentary pause. And in that momentary pause, the mind tends to quiet down. Mind tends to come clear. And this, this happens all the time, but we can start to notice that. And as we become more um, relaxed and more interceptive, and our attention is flowing more deeply within, because we're deeply relaxed, the breath starts to become more subtle. The breath becomes quieter. And as the breath becomes quieter, the thoughts become quieter because these two are intimately related. The breath, the, the, the old word, ancient word for breath and the word for spirit, life, being, were the same thing. In Hebrew, ruha. Ruha means spirit and it means breath. Same word. So breath and spirit are intimately interconnected. And as, as we allow this to come quiet, then we find that we become much more, uh, it, it, that the brain, that the mind becomes much more quiet. And in the process, we notice that the space between our, exhala our exhalation and our inhalation becomes a little longer. And in that space, that quiet space, we notice that there is this kind of awareness that's not having a story, that things are popping up. I mean, things continue to emerge. The mind doesn't just go blank, but things emerge in our field of awareness. I'm sorry, the field of awareness doesn't just go blank. Things emerge and they percolate through, 
And what happens? Because the mind is addicted to making sense out of the world. So as soon as impressions start to bubble up, then the mind thinks it has to make sense out of this. It has to analyze and figure out what is going on. What does that mean? What's that about? So the sensations, visions, we may see, you know, lights, fields of color, geometric forms, or, or just, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, amorphous array, or we may hear sounds, or we may have, uh, have sensations, feelings. So whatever we start to experience when we're in this more quiet state, the mind wants to make sense out of it. It tries to hang on to it. It tries to explain it and figure out, is this what I'm supposed to be feeling? You know, how do, how do I deal with this? And so it goes through this. And the trick is we have to disregard the mind's efforts, the mind's uh, impulses, its addiction to narrating the life, to, to turning everything into words and stories. If we don't have a word, if we don't have a concept for what's happening, then it's just happening. We just, we're just aware and we're having this experience of being, but we're not describing it. We're not, we, we, we let go of the description. We let go of the need to tell a story. We need let go of the need to have words associated with our experience. And so we can just, we can watch this. We, we see, and, and what happens is as we become more and more quiet, as the mind becomes more and more subtle, then we're able to kind of sense this, this awareness that doesn't have to be narrated. We, we have this sense of being and we're aware without thinking. Okay? And, and so we can be aware without thinking mostly. But there can be these little, in the background, these little you know, impulses, these little thoughts that are trying to bubble up, that are trying to grab our attention. And so we can notice that we're mostly in this state of awareness without thought, and that the thoughts are very, very subtle in the background. And so now we just learn to practice keeping our awareness flowing to this sense of being, to this uh, non-thought, non-thinking awareness, and disregarding these little impulses that are bubbling up in the background. So this is a stage of samadhi. This is a stage in our meditation practice where we move from the thoughts and the conversation and the narration. We move into this more subtle level where we are focused, aware, centered, being, and mostly in this state of awareness without thought. But still in the background, there's little subtle things. And as we sit with that, as we're able to keep our attention flowing, as we're able to keep to, to rest and become comfortable in being without having thoughts, without having to describe the words and the thoughts, they become more and more subtle. And we find that we're in this uh, interesting space where it continues to sort of reveal itself. It continues to open up and, and, and we, and we, we have to avoid the temptation to try to make sense of what's opening up. So if we have, again, fields of colors or lights or something that's happening, or we're hearing sounds, or we're having some sensation, some feeling, um, we have to learn to let go of this addiction to making sense out of it and just let it be. Just let it be. Let go and see, well, what you know, I don't know what this is about. I don't have to know what this is about. I'm just going for the ride. I'm just here for the experience. And so we don't have to think about it. And this is a discipline in our meditation of letting go, letting go, letting go, and just allowing whatever comes to come and let it flow through us and let it merge and let it automatically lead us back to this experience, this awareness of being. And so there is this innate impulse within us to be fully awake. And if we don't get in its way, if we allow it to just flow, it will automatically un, un, unfold and blossom within our awareness. And we become more and more conscious, super conscious above this normal consciousness, which is addicted to the narrator, which always has to have a comment, always has to have an opinion, always has to have a story about what's happening. And so we move into the story free zone 
we move into the place where the narrator takes a break and we can just rest in being awareness without having the mental concepts because all these mental concepts whenever as soon as we start using words words are limited they're symbols they just point to experiences but they don't have any any juice in themselves they're not things in themselves they are representatives and so it's it's like saying that the menu is not the meal so the menu is like the words but they just point to what's on the on the meal and we can't eat the words and so we get stuck in in limiting and reducing everything to something that we can tell a story about and the world the universe is much much richer and much more um, interesting and much more diverse than all the stories we can ever possibly tell but we have to be able to touch it directly rather than relying on the mind and the brain the processor to be able to be our uh, interface so does that make sense so we move from so we so there's not a switch that gets turned and all we're in samadhi there is this subtle transition subtle process that happens where we gently find that we're, we're able to pay less attention to the thoughts less attention to the dialogue and more we ex just experience awareness being and we allow it then to take us to where we need to be for this session of our meditation so and uh and along with along with the um the vrittis that we talk about these these conditionings um patanjali also says that that each one of these vrittis has the potential to be beneficial to be helpful or to be a problem for us to create a, a you know disharmony klishta that is affliction so our vrittis can be klishta vrittis that is afflicted and so what does an afflicted vritti look like well for example knowledge we know you know and we're very you know very confident about what we know because we've experienced it directly or because we can infer it from you know paying paying attention to what's going on or because somebody that we really trust has told us well what if uh, what if the somebody that's really that we really trust told us something that they believe deeply to be true and it's not what if it's fake news or what if we experience something directly <clears throat> and because we have filters because we have a predisposition to be looking for certain experiences and trying to avoid certain experiences what if we have this direct experience and we really are not experiencing it as it is we are superimposing our our pre-existing conditions our expectations and so what we know is wrong and so um so we have the, the possibility of knowledge to be afflicted so we can have you know fake news um we can have this uh, vidya knowledge be bad knowledge wrong knowledge avidya avidya is not ignorance avidya is wrong knowing knowing in a wrong way so we can have this afflicted and of course our ability our conceptualization can be um can be useful and beneficial for us or we can imagine and conceive things that are that are really not good you know we can imagine futures where um you know the economy falls apart and uh, uh somebody decides to be the dictator and sends the military in and the whole country turns into a you know a crazy new place where nobody wants to live anymore we can imagine that that's a, a vikalpa and if we imagine that with feeling and we feel oh man you know i'm I'm worried about this. I'm anxious about this. Well, we know that what we hold in mind, the idea that would be culpa that we hold and have feeling with, this creates a, a magnetic attractor for the universe to manifest through. So we can have be culpas. We can have these imaginings, these ideas, and it's creative imagination. It's just going off the tracks, you know. And so we can we can create for ourselves uh, the reality for ourselves of things that are not particularly useful. So this is a klishtavritti.
and memories rely on our memories or actually our body relies greatly on our memories so we don't do the same bad thing that we did before we don't touch the hot burner you know we make sure and um, take care of all those things that we've learned over time will hurt the body um, so so memory is very good very useful very important for a survival on a survival level but the way memories are created is not uh, recording like if you turn your video recorder on and you just take videotape what's happening and then you can play it back and there's your memory the brain doesn't work that way the brain breaks everything down into pieces into chunks little chunks and so the chunks are made of impressions that are happening while this memory is being laid down and so the chunks may be the temperature of the room the, the chunks may be the time of day the chunks may be related to what you had to eat and what you you know how your body is feeling the chunks may be related to the individuals you're with and the relationships and all these different pieces that come to make one memory put together one memory and these are stored in the in networks in the in the mind brain and then 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 at night um, the short-term memory is transferred from the hippocampus up into the cortex it's transferred during deep dreamless sleep and recorded in long-term memory and it's recorded with these little hooks these each one of these little chunks has a kind of a little resonant hook to it it's like a library of congress file where it's like okay you know we're talking about sunsets and then as soon as we say sunset all the sunsets we've ever experienced they all pop up as possibilities and the mind sorts through those as the one that's appropriate to this situation and then so we rebuild we create recreate the experience of our memory by reassembling pieces and chunks so and 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 we know this how this works because you know if you've ever been with somebody and had a, a nice dinner someplace you know 10 years ago we had this wonderful dinner it was beautiful and we were sitting on the beach in the sunset and and uh and i remember you know the steamed lobster was exquisite and and the person that you were with says no no we didn't have steamed lobster you know that was, <laughs> that was a different time you know that night we were having sushi or something so so we misremember both of us were sitting there both of us had the same experience and both of both of us were paying attention to what we were doing and yet the mind recreates memories and it incorporates other things other places and sometimes it'll even re, uh, plug in memories of things we never even did something that we saw in a movie that really was moving and emotional and you know in a wonderful way or a terrible way and and a little piece of that or somebody tells us a story and a little piece of that. So, so our memories are constantly being recreated in the moment. So, so while memory is useful for us, so we don't go back and stumble over, you know, the bad stuff of the past, we also have to keep it in context and not allow ourselves to be controlled too much by our memories. Because in, when at the end of the day, they're just stories, you know, memories have, they have no juice. They have nothing except uh, they're just reporting a story. It's like reading a novel. Oh, that happened. And gosh, that was interesting. And, uh, and, but the question right now is, so what, you know, where do we go from here? Because we have the ability to be whoever we want to be, to be whatever we want to be, to create the future that we want to live in, to experience the way we want to experience. This is the, this is the beauty of our creative imagination. So, so why do we why do we feel that we have to be limited to the past why do we feel that we have to continue to be the same person we were yesterday if it wasn't useful then change it you know wake up today and decide i'm going to be a new person and what does that new person look like you know it's up to you you just have to create the you know sit down with your list and write the list of what is my ideal perfect absolutely coolest life i can imagine and and be very specific i have i talk to a lot of people and and uh, and some that are just going through a challenge about what to do next and where's my life going and and i ask them you know very seriously what does your what does your ideal life look like i mean what is a perfect life for you whatever what can you imagine 
is the best thing that you can possibly be and what is the best thing you can possibly do and what are the best relationships? Where do you live? And what time do you get up in the morning? What do you have for breakfast in this perfect life, this ideal life? Be very specific. Write down the details. And most people, they have no idea. Have no idea what's best. They have no idea what the ideal is. Their idea of the ideal life is not this one. Whatever's happening right now is not it. I want something else. But if we just say, I want something else, the universe will give us something else. But, you know, we're going to continue to tumble around, you know, <clears throat> like a ship without a rudder. We'll never get anywhere. But if we have a sense, an idea, ah, you know, I can envision myself in this position. I can envision myself having wonderful relationships. I can envision myself being healthy, really healthy to the point where I get up in the morning and I'm full of energy. I can't wait to get going. I can imagine, I can imagine myself feeling like I have a purpose, a reason, something that I can, something that's worth getting up for, you know, something I can be fired up about. And I believe we should all, this is how we should all be living. We should get up in the morning and go, wow, I'm ready to go. You know, let's get to it. And not, oh gosh, another day, another drudge, oh bother. Remember uh, Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? You know, he walks around always gloomy. Um, we can be bright and excited. And so we can imagine our, <clears throat> ourselves, if we don't have that now, Imagine I am living on purpose. I, and you don't have to know what the purpose is. Just imagine the feeling of having that excitement about getting up every day. Imagine the feeling of being in relationships that are where it's mutually supportive. There is no, we, we don't get into a relationship because we need something, because we're lonely, because we feel disconnected. We get into a relationship because we feel a, a rapport, a resonance, and because we have something to offer, something to share, one another. And I don't mean that we have something to offer like I can fix this person. That happens much too often, you know. I get into a relationship because I can see the potential, and if I just work with them long enough, they'll eventually, you know, get their act together. And no, <clears throat> we have something to share because we have mutual uh, interests. We have we have a mutual direction that we want to go in, and so we can create relationships where we are mutually supportive, not from a not from a sense of need, but from a sense of gosh, it's wonderful to be able to dance through this life together with somebody who gets the joke, who understands what I'm understanding, you know, who who I can say hi. Isn't that cool? So we, this, these are the relationships that we should be, we should be having all the time. See, so we can imagine ourselves, imagine ourselves, imagine ourselves. Use our creative imagination to create the life that is the best that we can imagine. And if we don't know what the best life we can imagine is, then it's time to start. And if we don't have all the details, then whatever we can, whatever we can put together, whatever details we can put together right now. Um, maybe just to solve a, a present problem. Maybe it's to solve a health health problem. Maybe it's to solve a relationship problem. Maybe it's to maybe it's to solve a, a problem with our own inner upset. You know, we get angry or we get worried. Whatever it is that we see that's an obstacle, whatever it is that's kind of putting us off our game, we imagine. We use creative imagination to imagine ourselves moving through, moving past, and living in the consciousness the awareness that this is that this is fixed that we are now in this new life and and you know some of these things take some time and some of these things take no time i mean we can make a decision about changing our life like that and then we can get up tomorrow morning and become that new person make that change instantaneously it's possible and we think, oh, yeah, but it's hard and I've got these habits and this and that. I, I can tell you from personal experience because I've done it. I had a, a physical challenge many years ago, almost 20. Um, and I realized, I asked myself, well, how did I get myself into this? And I went back to my uh, Ayurvedic uh, books and um, did some research. And I, and I 
analyzed and figured out, well, what I had done to really put myself completely out of balance and create this physiological challenge for myself. And so, and so I read the book, actually it was Dr. Ladd's book. And, uh, and I went through and made a list, a whole eight and a half by 11 piece of paper in small print, made a list of all the things that I needed to incorporate to get rid of this situation, to bring balance back so that my body could be healthy because I really like being alive and I'm a creative person and I like to be able to get out and move. And when you're weak and you don't have any energy and things are not working, it's not fun. So, so I made this list. I will get up at this time in the morning, create a regular schedule, you know, this much meditation, uh, do these herbal formulas, this, uh, and hatha yoga, and, and my diet would be consist of these things. And my whole day was planned out. And during that time, I was, because I was still pretty weak in recovery, um, I, I really couldn't do much else. So I just focused and made this my whole life. I had my whole day was planned out around this schedule. And so I made that list and the next morning I got up and I changed. I just, I became the person that was living this life. I, you know, things, the habits that I had before and the things that I were doing, you know, uh, not bad habits, but just things that I was doing as a routine, um, I just changed. So I got up early. I did my routine. I went through this whole process. I went to bed early, you know, things that I had not been doing. Um, and I stuck with that routine. I stayed with that discipline every single day. I got up in the morning. I read my list. This is what I do now. This is what I do now. And then I went and I did it. And, and so, you know, it doesn't take very long, a couple of weeks of following that daily process. And then that's, that's us. We now are whatever we think about and whatever we do all the time, we become. Whatever we think about, and whatever we do, whatever actions we take on a routine basis, that becomes us. And so this transformation, like I said, you can, it can take place overnight. We just decide and then start step out as this new person, this new different person. And, uh, and I, you know, I think it's, it's, a, it's very useful, um, maybe not to do what I did and change your whole life, everything, but, uh, but it's very useful to just take one thing, you know, take something that's not serving you well, and maybe it's going to bed too late. Maybe it's, uh, you know, something in your diet that's not particularly useful. Maybe, um, you know, you have some relationship issue. Just take one thing and just work with that and just decide tomorrow I'm changing the nature of my relationship with my body on a health level, my exercise, my sleep, my diet, whatever, whatever it happens to be, I'm changing my relationship with this. And so from here on out, I'm going to be this other person. I'm going to be reborn, right? Renew the mind. <clears throat> and, so, and we can do that. So, and in this way, we're able to, um, to bring harmony and balance, tranquility into our life. And the more tranquility we bring into our life, the more tranquility we have when we sit to meditate. And so when we sit to meditate, we don't have as many disturbances and we don't have as many of these strong, um, some scars, these strong tracings that these images that continue to pop up and bubble up and create us problems. We're able to neutralize them and allow them to just harmoniously subside and, and eventually go away completely. So, so gosh, I'm sorry, I got carried away there um so do we are there any questions no questions for now okay and remember you can always send me an email and i still have one uh question that was uh from last weekend to address this week uh regarding cosmic manifestation and and the processes of that and uh, possibly we'll get into that a little bit tomorrow. And if we don't, Sunday afternoon at two o'clock, we have the YouTube first Sunday of the month webinar. And so uh, Sunday afternoon at two o'clock, I will be doing a talk from Mr. Davis's Seven Lessons in Conscious Living. 
and the theme will be the processes of cosmic manifestation. So we'll be going into that um, for an hour during that session if that's available. So we'll, we'll see how things unfold tomorrow. And until then, be joyful. Ron, and, yes. I have a, a question. Yes. Is, um, you mentioned uh, a book about Ayurveda um, principles, I guess, by Dr. Ladd. Yes. Is that LAD? I'm not familiar with. Uh, Dr. Yes, Dr. Ladd is, is the person who really brought Ayurveda to America. Uh, he is the the founder and the director of the Ayurvedic Institute in Albuquerque, um, and where my wife is going to school right now, by the way. Um, and oh. he's a remarkable, remarkable healer. I mean, and there is a movie, actually there's a documentary that you can watch uh, called A Doctor from India that is a documentary about him and his processes. And and it's a re- it's a really nice piece of work, and you can just see how sweet this guy is. But he's he's really... A healer. So if you go to the Ayurvedic Institute on dot com, Ayurvedic Institute dot com, and you wiggle around in the menus there, there is a place where they have videos, uh, free videos that you can watch hour long workshops where he talks about uh, all kinds of details, the chakras and um, and different parts of the body and the doshas and um, and so, so it's really nice to have a, a direct experience of this person because he really, his consciousness is really so beautiful and clear. And, uh, so yeah, I highly recommend him. And he's got a book called the, I think it's called the book of Ayurvedic home remedies, which goes through the basic principles in the beginning. And then at the end, he has a, like an encyclopedia of diseases and problems. So if you have, you know, housemaid's knee or, hypertension or whatever you just look that up and then it has the recommendations and um, what to do if you're a vata or a pitta or a kapha and and so uh, so that was the book that i used for myself it was like that was that was my guru when i was healing myself was dr lad's book i didn't have anybody else to talk to so so that worked but i I do recommend um if it's if at all possible that, that everyone see uh, an Ayurvedic doctor, um, just to be evaluated and to see what might be a little out of balance that can be brought back into balance before it becomes a problem. So if that's something that's available to you in your area, and you feel led to, it can be very, very useful, very beneficial. All right, good. Remember to be joyful. It helps you and it helps the world. So no downside. Namaste. Thank you,